What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Tim Clare. He's an author, poet, and a creative writing coach. Anxiety rates have skyrocketed over the last decade. After spending hours every weekend racked by crippling panic attacks, Tim decided to contact every anxiety expert he could to hear their suggestions for potential strategies to reduce it, and then he did all of them. Expect to learn why people are turning up to A&E believing they're having a heart attack, how the gut-brain connection plays a role in mediating our mood, why exercise is as effective as an anti-anxiety drug, how early childhood can influence our anxiety levels, the most effective tactics Tim has implemented to improve his mental health, and much more. I really appreciate how open and vulnerable and honest Tim is with this. There's something extra specially shameful deep down about being a man and a father and a husband and dealing with this. It's it's typically not what society expects of, of men. And the fact that this is across all genders, it's across <laughs> all two of them, and affecting people of all different age groups as well is um, something that we need to focus on. It's something that needs a lot more research. And the fact that Tim went to, read thousands and thousands of papers and went to see all of the biggest experts in the world. He's done the hard stuff for you. If you enjoy this, his book's linked in the show notes below and you should go and check it out. In other news. This episode is brought to you by Manscaped, the best ball and body hair trimmer ever created. If you are a guy that is looking to trim your body and your gentleman's area, this is the one-stop shop tool that you need. You do not need to use an old face shaver. You do not need to be anxious about nicking yourself. It's got a 7,000 RPM quiet stroke technology motor. It's got a 90-minute battery, so if you're a slightly more hairy gentleman and you need a longer shave, it'll work for you. Waterproof technology, which means that you can groom in the shower. An LED light, which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trim. And it's even got a wireless charging system using electromagnetic induction to help the battery last even longer now. It is the best way to trim your body hair, and you can get a 20% discount plus free shipping worldwide with the code MODERNWISDOM if you go to manscaped.com. That's 20% off everything, including all of their accessories and fragrances, but also including the Lawnmower 4.0, and you'll get that free shipping as well. Manscaped.com and the code MODERNWISDOM. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Aura, the fastest growing crime in America, is identity theft. There is a new victim every 14 seconds. And despite this, those who have had their identity stolen are often shocked when it happens. You log into your email account one day to just see that the password has been changed hours ago. And then you start getting notifications of activity from your bank, credit cards, crypto accounts, and more. Then your panic and fear and anxiety and disbelief and anger and frustration and guilt set in. And Aura is a great solution for this. It's an identity theft, fraud monitoring, password management, and antivirus software all combined into one easy-to-use app. Aura monitors the dark web for your emails, passwords, and social security numbers, and it sends alerts fast right to your phone and email. When it comes to fraud, every second matters. You can connect your credit card and bank accounts to be notified of any changes up to four times faster than competitors. Their antivirus software will block malware and viruses before they infect your device, and you can protect you and your family from America's fastest-growing crime by trying Aura for free for two weeks and that means that you can see if any of your personal information and your passwords have been compromised or leaked on the internet. You get full access for 14 days. Start your free trial by going to aura.com slash modern wisdom. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash modern wisdom. 14-day free trial. Go and use it. See if any of your passwords are on the internet. Aura.com 
slash modernwisdom. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all need help at some point in our lives, whether it's because of stress at home or work or loneliness. It can be invaluable to know that there's someone professionally trained who can help us get through whatever we're facing. Over 2 million people have taken charge of their mental health with BetterHelp's online service. It removes all of the hassle and awkwardness that can be involved in finding a therapist and gives you some essential simplified steps instead. There are a broad range of experts available categorized by their speciality or combination of specialities like addiction, social anxiety, or relationships. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Their therapists are available worldwide. You can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't even have to leave the house. If you've been thinking about starting therapy, and everybody should do, this is the easiest, quickest, most convenient, and cheapest way to start doing it. And you can get a 10% discount off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom. That's betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tim Clare. What is your expertise? What gives you license to write a book about anxiety? So the awful truth is is, is that I was sitting down having written sort of a couple of novels and thinking, what can I write about? And I'd written nonfiction before. I was like, what am I an expert? Because like you say, like when you're pitching something, whether it's like an article or a book, one of one of the four pitch lines, you know, it's like this is a story about this or I wanted to look into this. The reason why I'm the person to do this and you shouldn't get a better known celebrity to do it instead is because this is my area of expertise. And I was like, what am I an expert on? And it was like, well. I'm mentally ill, like I guess, like I'm really anxious. Like I was like at the time, like I had a two-year-old daughter. Um, she's still, she's just older now. I still have a daughter. She's just older, but um, and I, I was really struggling with like severe anxiety and panic that was like I was having panic attacks every week. Sometimes I was having multiple ones a day that would like put me on the floor, and I'd have several a day over like a three day period and I was like this is taking this is just like this is unlivable and also you know in my work I do doing like a creative writing podcast I'd started to have like neuroscientists on I'd started having psychologists on I studied like four years of psychology back in school but I'm not like qualified my background is in in writing but I'd spoken to these guys and had some really interesting beginning talks about the brain and you know the differences when they put like writers in an mri scan fmri scanner and stuff like that and so i was like think and then we signed my daughter up to a developmental study where they started studying her brain and the development of kids at different ages and i got to take her in and see they put this thing called an FNIRS on her, which is it's like a portable scanner in a kind of skull cap. It looks like a Medusa fright wig. They stick it on her head. She looked like uh, like, uh, well, she looked like a cross between Medusa. And this is like a very deep cut 
nerd reference, but like uh, when Patrick Stewart plays like Lucius out of the Borg, she looked like one of the Borgs. She had like one eye, red eyepiece on that um, tracks her vision. And I was seeing on a computer different parts of her brain lighting up uh, because of something called the bold response, the blood oxygen level dependent response, showing different parts of her brain uh, as different levels of demand wanted more or less oxygen. And I was like, I'm watching my daughter think we are at a level now where psychology and neuroscience, we can like look inside people's heads. And I'm like, there's got to like, I only get access to this because we signed up to this study, but I'm like, there's got, I now know I there's, researchers out there are willing to speak to me uh for some reason and i guess the reason the thing was i just wanted to get well and i was like well if i say i'm writing a book these people are going to open their doors to me they have and to I'm talk gonna be to able, me exactly i'm going to be able to grandfather myself in to speak to all these people and then i'm going to go like and at the same time i'd like you know, like if you've got hay fever, everyone in your family will like send you emails going, hey, I just read this article with this like their homespun remedy on how to beat hay fever. And, and, and you, Manuka you get it honey. You. Yeah, you need to spread the manuka honey over your nasal nasal cavity or something. It, yeah, it, exactly. And you'll, you'll never be short of suggestions. Well, obviously, people knowing that I was really scared, I, I was never short of people making suggestions, sending me articles, and you see all these articles saying, we, this new treatment has been found. So I was like, I keep reading that we're like five years away from this treatment that's going to blow it open, whether it was a new drug, uh, a new uh, sort of a, a new strategy that people were doing, you know, like I think you social prescribing people going for walks, forest bathing, ice baths, things like that. And I was like, what if I just go and speak to the people? There are people who are spending their lives studying this in all different disciplines. What if I go and speak to them and then I try and do everything? Because the other thing was, I'd also read all the studies on the effect of mental illness, a parent's mental illness on children and how that stuff starts early and it gets passed down and how across a whole range of profiles, it makes kids' outcomes worse. And like stuff you'd expect, like their chance of mental illness being worse, but also crazy stuff like their chance of having asthma. And I was like, it's this, I want my daughter to have the best chance in life she can. And like some of us can be like really down on ourselves and go like, I can't do this. I'm not worth it. But like the, the, the bottom line was, do I think it's worth having a go at this for my daughter's sake? You know, if I don't care about myself, do I care about her? And the answer was like, yeah. That's so one hell like, of a motivator. Be- yeah. I know. Yeah. And so that's, that's how I, so the, you know, the short answer to your question was when I started out doing this in terms of my qualification, I was quite smug. I was like, I've been, I've been I've been really anxious for ages. I have the worst panic attacks out of anyone I've ever encountered. I've read a lot of articles. My nan has sent me a lot of clippings. I was like, I'll go and speak to a couple of I'll speak to a couple of scientists. Right. And they'll kind of sprinkle like a little bit of legitimacy pixie dust on the top of it. 
they'll just quote stuff that I kind of already know. I'll go, yeah, yeah. I thought I'd sit in there. I'd get into their labs. I'd chat with them and they'd tell me stuff and I'd go, because of course it's this, isn't it? I'd go, it's the amygdala, right? And they'd go, oh, you know about that. Oh, you're a colleague. And we'd kind of like nod and they'd see that I was an expert. And then and then I and then I'd go and write my book. And it's only when I went out and started speaking to people and they're going, no, Tim, it doesn't work like that at all. And I was like, oh, I'm in deep trouble. I'm in really deep trouble. And then I just went down this rabbit hole, read over a thousand peer reviewed studies end to end, um, spoke to dozens of people, including like every expert that I could find in all sorts of disciplines. And by the end of it, like at least what I can say is I know how little I know, if that makes sense. Like I know how dumb I am and I know what the edges of my um, knowledge in any given discipline are. Well, the difference is that you've got that in the trenches experience, you know, like even if it even if it wasn't uh, medical understanding originally, you were able to appreciate it from an ex- from an experiential standpoint. Right. So what for the people that haven't had one, how do you describe what a panic attack feels like? So I went to the you, I mean, you can get a technical answer, right, which is you go to the DSM-5 and there's a list of symptoms, right? And you have to have like X number from a list of symptoms and uh, then then it's officially diagnosed. A psychiatrist could say, yeah, you've had a panic attack, right? And I think it's uh, just, just like a hair under 8,000 possible like acceptable combinations of symptoms you can have for a panic attack. So they're incredibly diverse, but reading the explanation of what a panic attack is, it's kind of like licking a photograph of an ice cream, right? Like describing a panic attack. I could, I can tell you that it's, it feels like it can feel like you're going mad. Like you, a lot of people, especially men, don't know they've got panic disorder until they present at A&E saying they're having a heart attack. They think that they're having a heart attack, that they're having cardiac arrest. They go to A&E and the doctor's like, no, you're, you're having a panic attack because so many of the symptoms are the same breathlessness, what they call like air hunger, um, but also a feeling of like derealization, which is really difficult to describe until you've been through it. But you can feel like nothing's quite real, like this sudden feeling that you're in a dream, which is also why a lot of people who are having a panic attack think they're going mad or insane. Um, your your airways closing up, um, dizziness, uh, racing heart, sweating, uh trembling um you might start getting pins and needles in your extremities your extremities might start um they call that pins and needles and your your extremities might your fingers might start going into claws which they call tetany um uh, which is to do with like calcium deficiency uh, as you breathe so hard um you might obviously like feelings of dread and fear often terror i mean my panic attacks 
but all of this is like if I described like you know they call it they, you know they'll call it in the literature they'll say a panic attack is like this feeling of sudden dread and fear accompanied by extreme physiological symptoms which is a bit like calling like being kicked in the balls like a, a sudden extreme pressure to the testicles right like it's a very very different thing to go through it um and you're like hey hang on and and even after I'd had one I'd look back and go yeah but that's not so bad and then you're going through it and you 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 feel like you're dying and it's ridiculous in a sense it is ridiculous because you're not but there's various ways and, and various elements that I would later learn speaking to like pulmonary biologists and uh, psychiatrists uh, about the physiology that makes it actually very difficult to think straight while you're having one it's not just a failure of character um so that's what it is but I would say like they can present very differently. Some people have talked to me having, we talk about the fight, flight or freeze response, right? Those kind of three things. And, and, and panic attacks, I would say you can kind of split them into those three categories. Some people, you wouldn't necessarily know that they're having a panic attack. They just go completely frozen up. I've had a friend I talked to who said he had a panic attack on stage while doing a stand-up gig, right? And he's at the mic and he starts having a panic attack. Now, people, all that people saw was him going completely silent, completely still and staring out like wall-eyed over this. It looked like stage fright, right? From his perspective, he's having a panic attack. He can't breathe. There are other people like me that, like, honestly, it looks like a toddler having a tantrum. Like, I, I'm, like, on the floor. I might be screaming. I might be saying I can't breathe. I'm, like, sweating. I might be, like, convulsing. You might think I'm having a heart attack. Um, it was like it was super embarrassing. It was it was like the most it was like the least dignified thing you could. The only way I could have been worse if I was like doing kind of like honking farts while I was doing. I was it. Like literally about to say the only thing you could have done was shit yourself at the same time, exactly. and that would have yeah, somehow it feels made like it worse. you're emotionally shitting yourself. Yeah, that's how <laughs> it, 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 it's that like complete like incontinence of like emotion and terror, which would you know. It, when when we see them in kind of the panic attack is preserved amazingly well over like millions of years of evolution you can get very similar reactions from you know like voles and stoats why is it have, why does it exist how is it adaptive to have a panic attack okay so that's a great that's a fantastic question and that and there's loads of th- like people have jumped on this like going why and uh, a there was a psychiatrist called Donald Klein who in 2003 wrote a paper where his theory was he sees it as a kind of um, uh, he called it like a suffocation false alarm. So he's going back to like we know that panic attacks can be reliably triggered by something called the CO2 challenge, right, where you give someone a mask and they breathe in a mix of air that's got 25 percent. CO2 in it, carbon dioxide, right? That reliably gives people like smashes of a panic attack. Like it's the grimmest thing. It's quite, and I've spoken to a psychiatrist who, you know, did it himself before he used it in his experiments. But we know that people who are vulnerable to panic attacks are much more likely to have bigger and worse panic attacks when they do that challenge. And it's one breath, by the way. Like you put this mask on, you take one day. No way. It's, I, 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 people who've done it have like said you can't. I, I, I should say like there's a there's a famous patient called patient SM who had her 
her amygdala, both her amygdalas removed, the amygdalae, the, 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 these parts of the brain that have often been thought by kind of like, when they talk about them in magazine articles, they call it the brain's fear center. Now it's not, but it's definitely implicated in our threat circuit. She had this rare genetic condition that meant she lost both of her amygdala were um, eaten away by calcium deposits. She couldn't feel fear. She had like a gun held to her head and someone threatened to kill her. She didn't even realize that they were threatening her. They've done all these tests on her. They have her held. They had her held snakes. They took her to like a fun house. And there was a guy dressed up as like Pinhead out of the Hellraiser movies. And apparently she made him jump because she went up and grabbed one of the nails coming out of his mask to, just to find out what was going on. She's been beaten up. She's been assaulted. At no point has she felt fear. She not was, all like, of these were in of... a, not all of these were in an experiment, I'm going to guess. No, 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 no. Right. They're they're super they're actually the experimenters, all of them that talked about her were really sort of protective and tender about her. She wasn't like some weird, like yeah. caged um well, the, the problem that you have with with someone that doesn't have any fear is that they're pretty bad at looking after themselves yeah, if you're not dumb. able to do threat response or threat detection very well you're unbelievably vulnerable yeah she's i mean and that's been a there's case studies from her life where you know a stre- a really ske- sketchy guy just like rolled up in his car and said do you want to get in and come with me and she was like oh yeah hi yeah and he took her to a uh, abandoned barn and assaulted her like she's had that throughout her life trusting people um, but then she who, does the she does the mask thing. Yeah, yeah, and then but th- th- this is the thing is like she's just not able to. She so she does this. Um, she did this uh, CO two challenge, this twenty five percent, and she had the worst panic attack they'd ever seen um, with that. So even somebody who cannot feel fear in their life had a panic attack a terrifying one when she had it now the difference with her is afterwards they said do you want to do it again she was like yeah all right she she wasn't able to learn from the experience but during it she was screaming i can't breathe she was grabbing for the so so the theory is um that these chemoreceptors in the brain um are there developed from when we were kind of like burrowing animals you 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 go to sleep in a burrow it collapses CO2 levels will start going up because you're going to suffocate. You want something that will just flood the body during sleep with adrenaline, cortisol, get the heart hammering and go just move, scrabble, thrash around, try and get out. That's the that's Donald Klein's theory that it's preserved because there was a time when it was adaptive to wake up suddenly because you and it kind of still is right. Like um, we know that children who um, have seizures during the night um, can, if, if if the seizure reaches the amygdala, they are capable of, um, of just stopping breathing. In fact, they've had problems, you know, this has been one of the problems with uh, COVID. Um, there have been COVID patients who stop breathing, have incredibly low oxygen levels and just aren't aware. They call them happy hypoxics, right? Like the infection, this kind of neuro might reach the amygdala and and these chemoreceptors are somehow affected in the same way that people report sort of problems with taste and smell and they don't know that they're not breathing and that little alarm that says <laughs> shit like you're suffocating you've got to breathe now and um sort of jolts you awake doesn't go off and people can just sit there and pass out um so that's the that's one of the theories another theory is that like a panic attack is like the last resort 
of the fight, flight or freeze, the like most primal response to being like attacked by a predator. Like if everything else has failed, if you've frozen and they still find you, if you try to run away and you still get caught, if you tried to fight, the last thing is just to flood the body with adrenaline. And so you thrash, you scream, you fight in the hope that like basically it drops you that, you know, or it like you so it's like this last ditch effort, um, which is why, which is, you know, one guy I spoke to, John Wemmy, who's like a psychiatrist and he does like pulmonary biology and things like that. And he performs this um, CO2 test. His position was like, he said, when the amygdala is removed, what the amygdala might do is help us decide which of the fight, flight or freeze options. You've got to choose, right, when you get this flood of adrenaline, it might help us decide it. And when that's removed, we might just always default to the to the worst thing, which is like panic attacks. Right. So it, uh, the amygdala is almost like a kind of spigot that chooses how much water you want. And if you hack the spigot off, it's just going to jet water. So that's one theory of panic attacks. Um, why why some of the elements of them might be adaptive, that, that it's it's a chemoreceptor in the brain. There's very well, actually, there's various areas that might have chemoreceptors. The amygdala might have them, but also periaqueductal gray, kind of like around the back. Um, that You might have these oversensitive chemoreceptors. And actually, when they've done ambulatory monitoring of people who have panic attacks, where they monitor their breathing as they walk around throughout their daily life, they find that a lot of people who have panic attacks have a tendency to overbreathe. Right. So they're breathing a lot. They're washing out carbon dioxide they're taking in a lot of oxygen and so as they do that right they're they're slowly training this kind of like this canary in the mine shaft right this the, these chemoreceptors to be more and more acutely aware of the tiniest bit of co2 and so all you need then is a period where you know people frequently with panic disorder will wake up in the night having a panic attack so there's been no trigger it's not like they're they're in a shopping center and they feel claustrophobic they're in bed and they wake up thinking they're having a, a heart attack right and and then so there may be some dis there it's it happens panic disorder correlates with like sleep apnea and like uh respiratory problems people who ha have them so there may be some dysregulation of breathing and then of course what happens if you're having a panic attack which we often think is part of it, but it's sort of almost a second stage, is then you overbreathe, you hyperventilate, which, I mean, it, I don't know, like if you hyperventilate, it has all these crazy effects on, I mean, and this is what I didn't realise, I didn't get, was like, and, and it also explains the very traditional method of stopping someone having a panic attack, right? Where you see them on the old movies where they breathe into paper a paper bag, bag right? Yeah. And that's not really dealing with, panic attacks so much as the effects of hyperventilation which are like an overcorrection afterwards right someone breathes and breathes and breathes it washes out all the co2 and then with all that uh, lack of co2 in the bloodstream you get something called uh, cerebral hypoxia where um the brain is flooded uh with uh with oxygen and as a response, it uh, you get a vasoconstriction in the brain. So the capillaries, after about a minute of hyperventilating, the capillaries are about 50% of their previous capacity, right? And then, and this is all really complicated. It took me ages to get my head around this because you're like, well, the, the your bloodstream is full of more oxygen. Surely your more is going to your brain. Well, 
the body is a homeostatic system and it's constantly trying to make sure different areas are getting what's needed and if your body thinks it's in fight flight or freeze and there's your brain thinks it's getting too much oxygen it'll go right we don't need this right we're going to restrict the blood vessels so the rest of the body presumably we're being chased or in a fight right so i'm going to save the rest of that oxygen to for the mitochondria in the cells in sort of my legs so you can run away right so we're, we're all right here and, and and that's a mistake that the brain makes at the same time you get this thing called a leftward shift on the hemoglobin disassociate dissociation curve which basically means that hemoglobin the tran- the protein transports of oxygen around the blood stream cling on to that oxygen more tightly when you get a carbon dioxide washout so it doesn't they don't deliver those oxygen molecules as readily so not only does your brain get 50% of the blood flow but all of the oxygen that's flowing through the bloodstream is not letting go of so your brain like within a minute your brain has been massively starved of oxygen so you start feeling dizzy you can't think straight you start getting that derealization you start thinking you're going mad you can't take logical steps um because your brain is shutting down and this is why people will regularly you know like i say they will present thinking they're having a heart attack they'll present thinking that they've gone in that they've lost their mind um and it's all to do with respiratory function which is like great which is mad for me right that it's something so simple as like that dysregulation and then over breathing can lead to people thinking i'm going insane and i'm dying and it's just a breathing rhythm thing looking at the techniques that you went through in an effort to try and discover what can help anxiety disorders what did you find out about exercise so exercise is a really interesting one. I thought exercise was the first thing I tried, right? Because I was like, well, this is a slam dunk. I mean, I was really, really unfit, like incredibly unfit. My job is three meters from my bed. My favorite activities are like video games and sleeping. Like I, I was not, it's no exaggeration to say I was, and like I was a dad with a two-year-old, right? So like my sleep patterns were all out of whack. I was comfort eating because of the anxiety and because of you know i'd often get my daughter to bed at a crazy time and then i'd just like get a takeaway because the idea of then cooking for myself was seemed like the least appealing thing and i thought i fancy you know i deserved a treat so but i thought exercise i was like everyone's always telling me to do exercise it'll be a shoe in and i went and started looking at the literature i went to see a trainer called dave Thomas, who owns a gym in London, who's got like 20,000 hours of like one-to-one sessions under his belt to talk to him about like sports science and stuff like that. And I started digging into the literature. And what I was surprised to find is the relationship between exercise and reducing anxiety is by no means clear. There's a really interesting paper by a psychologist from Liverpool University called Peter Salmon, who looked at a load of studies on anxiety and exercise. And what he found is that most of the studies that you will read, like in the paper, in magazines that say, you know, 15 minutes of hit a day will reduce exercise, will reduce anxiety and uh, whatever. The people they get to do, though, the sample that they use for those generally and they should be obvious for us but like people who sign up to those studies are not generally people who hate exercise they need volunteers right and the people who tend to sign up to exercise 
studies tend to be people who quite like exercise. So for a start, there's a skewed sample in that the people who are doing them are people who generally don't hate exercise. Secondly, the samples that are used, and this is another weird one that surprised me, are often not people who are clinically anxious. They will get people who are just you know, everyday people and they will study them and then they'll give them a survey at the beginning and a survey at the end and they'll go, do you feel less anxious now than you did before? And often people do, but they weren't clinically anxious to begin with. They just feel more relaxed. Does that mean it works with someone with PTSD or panic disorder? That study doesn't have anything to say on that necessarily. Secondly, a lot of studies don't Thirdly, I should say, a lot of studies don't really distinguish between what type of exercise. Like there are a lot, you know, exercise is a big, that's like just saying, you know, books. Is a reading a book good for you? Well, what kind of book, what kind of exercise is walking the same as, you know, sprints or, um, uh, you know, fartlek or hit? Is, are we talking like marathon running? Are we talking about like swimming? Um, what what duration is, are we talking relative intensity to someone's fitness level or absolute intensity? Uh, what, how many days a week for over what period? So all of these questions are ones that um, are not often well addressed in the current literature. And And of course, one of the things that I got from talking to Dave is like, you know, if you start an exercise regime, the first thing it's going to start doing is at least transiently raise your cortisol levels, your adrenaline levels, you know, your your testosterone levels as well, which is like more ambiguous when it comes to how that affects anxiety. But your stress hormones are going to go up initially. Right. So the, the and it's going to be unpleasant. Right? When I started running doing this book, I fucking hated it. It was grim. I did not like start running down the street whistling to myself going oh, I feel so alive I oh my god I hated life so much I could taste blood in my mouth I was limping I would like I was aching the next day I couldn't get up and down the stairs I was so angry and I was like why am I doing this I hate doing this but and there is there is a but coming here right like despite all that so those are all the caveats right despite all that if you then look at the body of literature, there are some great results. Like one thing I'd say, like, let's imagine that it, you did a bunch of exercise, right? And it did nothing for your anxiety, but you started an exercise regime. Well, like we already know you're going to live longer. You're going to have, you, you're going to, um, you're going to have more energy during the day. You're going to be, your profile, risk profile across a range of diseases is going to drop dramatically, um, so 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 the worst case scenario is that you live longer you're a healthier better leaner sexier version of the person who were yesterday you just still have anxiety yeah it, yeah exactly exactly so like it's not like you know we're asking someone to put their hand in like a, a meat grinder like it's it's something that's already good for you i think is is sort of unambiguous across the range of literature but can it help um uh, anxiety well there are some suggestions that there are ways it can do like when we look at um, athletes and some studies of people who exercise regularly and do intense exercise. And they've done some of this with bodybuilders as well. Actually, in response to a, a threat and in the you know, this in the lab, this tends to be something like a uh, they call it like a shock protocol. So they literally wire someone up and give them 
unpredictable electric shocks. Um, that's how they find out someone's stress levels and they'll check their cortisol with a swab. When you look at these people, actually, their fight, flight or freeze response, their um, hormone cascade is, is, is generally more pronounced than people who don't exercise. However, it tends to normalize more quickly as well. So they have almost like more of an adrenaline boost in response to a stimulus. But then they return to baseline faster. And this is something actually we see a lot across a lot of anxiety that it's not so much someone has a bigger, it's not like someone has a bigger startle reflex or that that can be part of it, but that they're worse at responding to safety cues and returning to baseline. Got less like equanimity they, on the other side of it. Yeah. it exactly. Yeah. Like, like the, uh, uh, you know, and it was true of me that like a, a can of beans could fall out the cupboard. And that would be me gone for the rest. That would be my nerve shattered for the morning. I'm just like, I've got to take to my bed now with a case of the vapours and fan myself saying, what shall become of us? Because like that was it. Like my, I was just jittery. Yeah. Um, so it's going to normalise that. Uh, uh, the other thing is, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, you'll be thinking about this as well, but like your blood sugar levels, like when in response to a shock, you know, your body is going to release uh glucose there's various hormones that um release you know glucose into the bloodstream anticipating a threat so it's going to be available to the muscles so you can start running and whatever so uh, it releases these sugar stores if you don't immediately use that up then um your body is is going to release insulin to reabsorb it so you get these big crashes so that's why often people will, with anxiety have this horrible up and down thing where you get the shock and then you drop into like the equivalent of a sugar crash afterwards where you feel sluggish you can't think and then of course you it's tempting to like have a sugary sports drink or something which will sort of briefly bring you back up and normalize but then you know you start this kind of like your day is this series of peaks and troughs um exercise can help down regulate some of the kind of corticoid uh like some of your um receptors that that deal with things like cortisol to make them sort of slightly less responsive and they can put you in a situation where those kind of like sugar spikes uh are less pronounced um they, they help with things like in insulin resistance as well and that's of course you were shading into diet now but exercise is part of that as well well yeah what, so about, what about that because i've always heard that there's more serotonin released in your gut than there is in your brain and that there's a gut brain connection when it comes to anxiety and that inflammation is something that you need to watch out for because you can eat some gluten and you'll have an anxiety attack what did you what's the lessons to be learned there yeah, so like that's really important, and it's what that serotonin receptors in that you've got you, that that idea of like having loads of serotonin receptors in your gut. Yeah, like serotonin, five hydroxytryptamine, um, most of it is you know is doing stuff around in different things all across your body, um, and it's also the reason why you can't just take a serotonin pill, right? Because it doesn't cross the um, blood-brain barrier to get into your brain. It's not won't be available in your brain. You've got a blood-brain barrier that stops like nasties getting into your brain. Obviously, your brain's sort of like very, very, that's one of the reasons why you get kind of like cerebral vasoconstriction so quickly, why it has these crazy responses is because it, it's really, really conservative. Finally on how it, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it it doesn't, you know, because getting a virus into your brain is is much, much worse than getting one into your stomach. Like if it's in your stomach, you can just diarrhea it out, which is one of the functions of serotonin um, in the gut is is what they call peri- it, it contributes to gut motility or peristalsis, which is why if someone takes like an SSRI, a, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor to increase the um, availability of serotonin, one of the side effects is diarrhea. Um, it, it's it's also one of the reasons why, like taking, like a real strong serotonin agonist like psilocybin, uh, um, can give someone gut cramps and extreme cases like diarrhea because it is that you've got all these serotonin receptors in the gut. Yeah, that are, but but they do something different crucially to what what they might do in the brain. Um, uh, mostly they're you know. They're flushing out nasties. Uh, yeah, peristalsis is like the motion a worm makes, and they make your gut do that to kind of force stuff through quicker. Um, so what you eat, I'd, I'd say like like one of the key areas for me, I spoke to a couple of people. I spoke to a um, microbiologist called Simon Carding at the uh, in uh, in Norwich, um, and he deals with, well, what he deals with like, the, I'll tell you, I'll be honest, the real reason I spoke to him like a little bit is because they do these fecal microbiota biota transplants, right? These FMTs where and they've been using it to deal with people who've got C. difficile infections, right? Really serious, life threatening infections in their microbiome. And what they do is they take a cocktail. They take basically they take they get a fecal tr- transplant from someone else. They someone donates their poo that um who's got a healthy microbiome they kind of whisk it up and then they and then they sort of syringe it into the patients either up their rear end or that you can swallow it in something that they call a crapsule and it will like restore your microbiome yeah i know right and there's all these beautiful stories that are like my dad's poo saved my life and stuff that you see in the papers so that's like well evidence for c difficile but they started to find these other things where took the microbiome from the quote-unquote brave mice these uh these um this one strain that are known to be more likely to explore a maze and they'll jump down from a raised platform quick quicker and they injected the microbiome from their uh from their gut into well well from a little pouch into that mice have called the cecum and they took that and they injected it into the timid mice these ones that are a strain called balb c that come from like a uh, they're traced all the way back to like a 1913 pet shop dealer in like ohio and they've been and they've just been bred and bred and bred and they're known to be very sort of wimpy mice mouse equivalent of nervous right uh, and so they'll inject that microbiome into those mice and those mice become braver they become quicker to jump down from a raised platform so people are like what the hell's going on here if you can give one microbiome to another type of mouse that is like genetically that is like known to be heret have a hereditary cowardice and it changes they don't become as brave as the other mice but they become more brave right what's going on here so they've been looking at it in humans can we give people can we change people's gut microbiome um and make them braver (laughs) so so the, the 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 sort of disappointing answer is like at the moment probably not like we've we've looked at it for ages and it seems to work with mice but mice have got like three inches of gut we've got like three meters 
like the, there's a reason like we are it, it was funny speaking to simon Cardin because he was like almost like pinching his nose like the number of times he'd had to tell journalists mice and humans are different and it's like almost surreal to like have that conversation over and over and go a mouse is not a per- is not a little person like, they, like they, they've got all sorts of differences in their guts they they can't like my, my, mice and rats can't be sick uh, they they don't have a gag reflex, so they've got massive differences in what they can and can't do. But in terms of like your diet, um, there's plenty of like epidemiological studies, so big, big, big studies where they take huge numbers of people that suggest like there's a mild association with like a Mediterranean diet and lowered risk of anxiety and uh, depression. It's it's not like a huge uh, one. It's like uh, like for one in every forty five people who switch to a Mediterranean diet will avoid depression or anxiety that would have otherwise gone. But there's like a smallness. But oh, you you do that over a population, right? And suddenly you are reducing. You're getting hundreds of thousands of fewer people hitting the mental health system with anxiety and depression. And hundreds of thousands, and that's only clinical level as well. But hundreds of thousands of people potentially who aren't having their life like ruined by this so so you know it gets to big numbers if you look across a population um but i did speak to you you asked about inflammation i spoke to a uh an immune she called herself an immunopsychiatrist say so she called herself that was her job title she did she's she's at um the university of southampton dr rihua hu and she told me she looks exclusively at um at the links between inflammation and depression and also anxiety and she said that there are you know what the what we're look we, we're finding a bi-directional link between anxiety and chronic inflammation in the body now it just so happens that um being sort of like chronically overweight increases inflammation in the body it just so happens that doing lots of exercise uh reduces inflammation in the body so if there is a bi-directional link between those two things we can kind of put the pieces together and i'm kind of like speculating slightly although she felt that this was reasonable um that 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 eating a you know a good diet and that that'd be one you know a mediterranean style diet you know full of like um plant-based like polysaccharides lots of fiber things that are going to like increase that gut motility and stuff is going to reduce inflammation and mm, reduce your risk pro- i think it's i think it's fair to say reduce your risk profile of anxiety rather than immediately cure your anxiety uh, she, she also mentioned things that i i on it i thought she was taking the mickey to be honest when she told me them because she said oh let, so what's some other things you can do and she said oh well, like be religious and I was like, that can't be right. And she was like, being religious is reduced with lowered inflammation, lowered this CRT, this marker of inflammation. People who are religious and part of religious communities have have lower levels of that. I was like, Cut. so I ended up looking into the research of that. And it and it is true. It doesn't specify what religion. So, um, you know, if you want to kind of <laughs> you want to start your own cult, apparently that will reduce your chances of anxiety as well. But I suppose, you know, the takeaway from all of this is anxiety is not just one thing it's not it's a bit more like a headache right it's a symptom that could have many causes and it may be that there is a subgroup for whom their chronic anxiety is arising from 
chronic inflammation from a kind of feedback loop from poor diet uh, lack of moving around and uh, sort of lowered hormone profiles across a range of things. There's other things that exercise boosts like this uh, neuropeptide. Why is this one particular peptide that's associated with lower anxiety in people who have it, lower rates of PTSD in people who have like high levels of neuropeptide? Why that is produced by doing lots of exercise. So there is a good chance that there is a, a subgroup of anxiety sufferers who may be, you, you know, they, when when we've looked at the depression profiles of with uh, with inflammation, we can see that there are some people who respond really well to just taking uh, anti-inflammatories for their for their depression. There is like a subgroup who seem that seems to like they so seem that's to the crux of their depression. That's one of the reasons that their depression manifests. Yeah, but I would never want to get into this. You, you can get sucked into these sort of arguments where people are going, so are you saying that like anxiety exists in the brain or are you saying it's just about inflammation or are you, you know, surely if someone's like having a stressful life, that's going to contribute. And, uh, and then there'll be other people who say it's only their environment and you can't ever say anything about neuroscience, uh, even though like clearly all the thoughts we're having, all the experiences we're having are, you know, in some way instantiated in the brain like there is a brain that is one of the pieces in this puzzle right and and sometimes when i get sucked into those i feel a bit like i'm watching two people have a brutal fist fight over whether kermit is a muppet or a frog you know like I, it's it's just like these things can all um be contributors and for me like inflammation is definitely sort of a reasonable culprit but it may not be everybody's sort of primary boogeyman kind of behind what what's giving them anxiety what about childhood trauma and bullying and stuff like that how does that contribute well i spoke to the yeah so i spoke to a oh, i spoke to a brilliant neuroscientist called um nim nim tottenham who has done lots of studying of like childhood adversity and particularly how it affects brain development and how um when people have had very traumatic childhoods uh, either because of like a single traumatic incident or because of like lots of different things that have happened. Um, it affects, there's suggestions that it, it, it affects brain development in a way that's not always immediately apparent at the age of the trauma, but happens later abnormal development of, I've mentioned the amygdala before, but also the hippocampus, which is associated and implicated in parts of memory um we're trying to get away from this idea that one part of the brain is kind of like one department for doing one thing but certainly hippocampus is important in forming memories and in specifically for anxiety it seems to be to do with um associating certain environments with safety or threat which is why there seems to be a lot of dysregulation in the hippocampus in um soldiers with ptsd people coming home who are sensitive to it somehow yeah you know that kind of like the, the kind of classic thing is like uh car backfiring and they think they're kind of under gunfire but like that un that, that the brain's inability to to differentiate between a theater of war and a a, a a safe zone um you know the hippocampus is almost certainly implicated in some level in that um but nim tottenham tottenham looked at how the brain Often those she did this great paper that showed that like often this, our studies suggest that the brain starts to change 
in adolescence, but as the result of things that happen much, much, much younger. And we might get a sort of upregulation of when we, if you're looking at, I guess, what they call like neuroanatomy, you might get much bigger or much smaller area. It's like the one thing I'd say at the moment is the literature is really ambiguous over whether an area like the amygdala, whether um, having a big amygdala is uh, worse because you're going to be more anxious or whether having a smaller one is worse because you have less regulation over anxiety. It's not entirely clear what the relationship is between sort of size and um, function. Did they say what sort of age this could begin from? Are we talking about before stuff that we could potentially even remember, sort of toddler age, that there could have been things that have impacted on our brains from then? Absolutely. I mean, some of of the – I was looking at one study that was suggesting that we can't start forming – coherent autobiographical memories that we're able to retell to people until about two and a half. So, uh, you know, they could be things that you don't remember, but certainly like from the moment you're born, you, you're, you are learning your threat circuits are active, right? Like babies are not great at um, certain types of threat perception, but you, 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 you come out of the womb with sort of like flinch responses to say like being dropped or pain or things like that um babies for a while they've done these great studies where they get babies to crawl out over a perspex floor that suddenly underneath dip like goes is a cliff like drops away and you know uh, uh, crawling age they will just crawl happily out over the edge um on this perspex thing they don't know that they're on a see-through kind of like ledge um and then there'll be a certain developmental point where they'll go i'm not i'm afraid of heights now um so we know that some uh, fears are, uh, are required. Some are developmental steps. Like it's good when a child starts to get a little bit of stranger fear. There'll be a moment where a child gets a bit more clingy. Well, they're starting to differentiate between faces. That's quite good. You know, obviously, like it can be pathological, but it's part. It's a it's a neuro uh, anatomical and neuro uh, developmental. A milestone that's actually pretty great, right? Like they're, they're they're learning to go. This face is safe. This is a stranger. But yeah, from really early on, they she, Nim Tottenham did a great study in mice um, where they played them music when they were born. Like they play a particular song, and then they found mice don't normally like to nest around any noise at all. Like they're naturally timid. Um, but then. Uh, if this song was played when they were adult mice, um, they would want to go, they prefer to go and make their nest when this music was playing. So they tried it with um, adults. They they got but people in and they played them songs. They did this very stressful test um, where it's, it's this like notorious test called the triers, where basically you're made to do a a maths test that is rigged that you're always going to fail. It's going to be too hard. And the answers come too quickly. There's like a loud horn sounds every time you get one wrong. Um, you, you can see a bar that supposedly how other people who've done the test before did. And you're always doing much worse than that bar, right? People report doing this triers as like the most stressful thing. It's more stressful than like noxious thermal stimuli where their hand is burnt more stressful than seeing like graphic photos of like corpses. The the triers is what people find the most stressful and don't want to go back and do again. And and she did this test where they, they would be made stressed by that. 
and then they'd either be played some random music or one group were played music from this what they call the critical period which is like around five and six and if you're played if she found that when people were played the music from five and six I mean, it reliably reduced their stress levels more than the control music. You mean so that they went back to the time when these people would have been five and six, looked at the typical songs that were playing yeah, on the so radio, it was like it was Phil music. Collins exactly. or whatever the fuck. Yeah. yeah. So everyone will have like a critical period. So she think, and so she, her theory is that this is a critical developmental period when we are learning safety because people who had had a trauma around that age um their critical developmental period was shifted earlier to about three or four so uh, as if the brain just goes shit we we like we're not going to have time to fully develop we need to like get things going right so they tended to respond better to music that was what was the response the the, the threat response was downregulated what happened yeah, so it, it's the it's lowering of cortisol levels. So they'll do like cortisol swabs. It's also things like they'll do galvanic skin resistance. So they'll check the sweatiness of skin and things like heart rate as well. They'll also just get people to because we can. I, I got quite like obsessed with all these kind of like objective measures of like anxiety, but they'll also just ask people what is your subjective experience? How stressed are you feeling right now? Which is always like a useful thing to do because sometimes you can get. A lot of studies they've done on neuroscience and stuff, they'll get parts of the brain that are supposedly associated with threat um, flashing up and they'll go, oh, this person must be scared. But then when you ask someone in the scanner, are you feeling scared? They'll go, no. And actually, some of those studies, I spoke to one neuroscientist, Alexander Shackman, who was like, you know, actually, one of the problems we have is the tests are kind of boring and people fall asleep in the scanner. So clearly we can't be studying anxiety if like someone's like falling asleep because they're so bored and that you got, you're going, these people are scared of these things. So yeah, like the res- the response was people were having, they were like moving into that kind of parasympathetic rest and digest state of kind of going, it's like almost like those songs are safety cues for them. Okay. And so is, like, the, is, is the lesson, to, what's the lesson to take from that when it comes to childhood trauma and adult anxiety? Well, like there's there's two and like one of them is like the obvious ones that like we've got to like really protect children and make sure they grow up in the best environments possible because these things can have disproportionate effects on how they grow up. But I would also say, you know, as an adult, you can if you've been through difficult things in your childhood. It can be the most des- most depressing thing in the world for someone to go, oh, yeah, I'm afraid you're screwed. And here's like 50 studies proving it. it, it, it like We're seeing more and more like neuroplasticity is still a thing. So what I would say is there is clearly an effect from that critical period of music. And you might find that listening to songs from that period help you. But I'm not convinced that that having like, looked across the literature, that effect is necessarily bigger than just listening to music that you love, right? I'm not sure. It might be an effect, but whenever we find an effect in uh, research, we've got to ask, compared to what? And there, and, and I'd say probably those songs do work better than random songs. Do they work better than, like, your favourite songs? I don't know. But in terms of, like, what we can do about it, the take the takeaway is that, yeah, you may have had experiences early on that have predisposed your brain to go... Not in a nasty way. It's not even pathological. It's gone. Okay, the world is a dangerous place. I'm gonna. We are gonna be on the lookout for stuff, and we're gonna, 
look around and make sure that we spot this early. So, so I, you know, I'm, you know, someone might have social anxiety, right? They might like constantly think, does this person hate me? They, you know, you might be on a train and there's some, a couple of people are drinking and you start getting anxious and you're and, and part of your brain is thinking, is it going to kick off? Are these people going to be a couple of drinks down the line and going to start like getting leery? And am I going to be going to get in a fight? Well, all of that is actually com quite compassionate and rational of your brain. If you grew up in an environment where like, don't piss off dad. If dad comes home and he's had a few, like just get out of the way, like spot the early warning signs that someone might be not safe to be around, like and try and spot the moments where that, you know, the shift in the tone of voice. If you've grown up around that, there's some there's like a little note of warning in someone's voice. And that is the time you're going to get you're going to get a hiding if you don't get out of the way. Your brain's going to go cool. Like, well, that's cool. We're going to apply that. That's right? an adaptive like, lesson. Yeah, that's a useful it is, thing. It? Yeah, like if you have a soldier like in a theatre of war who's just prepared to like walk down, sort of walk through an urban environment where there are like installed snipers sort of whistling and like twiddling, twiddling an umbrella around their finger, you wouldn't go, oh, that's great. That's a, like a healthy human being who has no anxiety disorder. These things are contextual. They're deeply contextual, right? That you would think you would think that person has, Rightly, I think you would think that person has lost their mind. Their behavior would be maladaptive. To be non-anxious and to not have any threat perception in a dangerous environment is, 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 is in some cases fatal, as we've sort of said before, when people you know, are unable to tell if someone's trustworthy or not. The question is, and I think the question that anyone's got to ask is like, is this How's that working out for you? Basically, is this still serving me? If it's not, there is no indication that the brain is not plastic, that the, the brain is changing all the time, which is why I got a lot of neuroscientists laughing at me when I was going, I read a study that said eight weeks of, 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 of meditation can change the shape of the brain. And they're like, yeah, like taking a shit changes the shape of the brain. Like if you do that in the same loo every day, like, an, like every action we do changes the brain. Every action we do is making new connections, strengthening connections, wrapping these myelin sheaths around neurons. What this is, you know, what they call Hebb's postulate, what fires together, wires together. You cannot do a thing in your life that isn't changing your brain. So I, I, I would, you know, I think it's a really important takeaway is to say, like, you you know, of, co of course, there are neurological conditions. You can get you can take a brain injury that affects your brain but in terms of a childhood experience um meaning that you are destined for all your life to, to you can't get better you can't improve um i'd say there is um the the the, the, the research simply doesn't support that at all is the good is the good news like it, it is the research doesn't support the idea that you can't change the brain i'd say it's almost impossible not to be changing the brain with almost every action and decision you make which is its own kind of existential crisis you're like what habits am i laying down you what don't kind of get to not make a habit man you only get to choose which type of habit you want to make that's what people need to remember like every action that you take moves you toward a tomorrow that is more likely for you to do that thing again you know you want to eat the cookie or not eat the cookie it's not just a case of eating the cookie is not not eating the cookie it's also ingraining the eat the cookie uh, module. So one of the things talking about um, identity 
our sense of self growing up and being an adult and stuff like that. Something that I'm really, really interested in, given the fact that you're a man, you're a professional, you have an identity, you have people that follow you online, you've got this big course that loads of people have done about coaching them to write and stuff, father, husband, masculine purpose in the modern world, all this sort of thing. Something that I'm really interested in is um, how you have dealt with the uh, sense of self-referential um, feelings around being someone that has panic attacks. You know, did you struggle with masculinity, with your identity, with what you feel your place in the world is, given the fact that you're doing something that traditionally is not seen as that protector-provider stereotype? I mean, so yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, of course, like you want to, part of you's like imagines that you're above all that and you kind of go well i don't really you know i don't i i'm confident enough in my own masculinity to to not feel threatened by that but when you are on the floor like having shoved like a towel in your mouth to try and cover the sound of you screaming so your baby daughter doesn't hear because you don't want her to be afraid in sort of two rooms away when you while your wife looks after her and you're because you're scared of nothing also also you're just in your house right there's no threat um it's in i think it's impossible for anyone no matter what their relationship to masculinity um to feel diminished by that we know actually from really some really interesting studies i read that people who have more of a sense of sort of what what we might think of as sort of traditional masculine values. And I want to be careful how I say that because that's, that's a bit loaded. Um, but the idea that men shouldn't get anxious, that men should be sort of self-sufficient, um, consistently have worse, are more likely to get PTSD and have worse symptoms when, when they do. Why this do you idea think that is? I think if you can't, well, we know that the ability to, it's going to sound so like obscenely simple, but the ability to talk to someone about what you're feeling and have it validated and be heard. It's like, I think fundamental to getting over anything to be able to go like partly because it means you've got to be able to articulate it yourself. So it requires some self level of self insight. And if you can't, if you can't, if, if, if it shatters your identity to go at the moment, I'm really anxious. I'm not coping. So you can't let that in. You're going to constantly have an incongruence between your daily experience and the person you want to be. And you'll know that you're not living up to what you want to be, right? Like you can say it all the time, but you know. And so you you constantly feel like a failure, right? You You continually do. Also, if you can't go to a doctor or, you know, a, or just a friend, right? And say, I'm having the shittest time. I'm I'm getting like stressed. I like getting keyed up. I like, I can't sleep at the moment. I'm like, keep thinking there's someone in the back gun going to break in. I was up at two o'clock, like with a flashlight, like all of these things. If you can't speak to someone and they go, yeah, like the, what I was talking about earlier, that sounded like a throwaway line about religiosity, re re reducing inflammation. Well, one of the reasons that might be is just people having supportive communities who they can go to where it's normalized to go, I'm having a shit time. I've just been bereaved, you know, like in a religious community, if you, if you lose someone in your life, they die, it's expected that you'll be able to talk to them about it. And 
that is in itself like has such a it, it may even account for many of the instances of the placebo effect that sort of so bedevil psychological research in that just going to someone in fact when we look across all types of evidence-based therapy it doesn't matter what the modality is right it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what type of therapy it is they all perform about the same and and, and a lot of that i think is just being in a room with someone who listens we are a social gregarious species we are made which is why i think like so many people found like lockdown and i don't think you could have done anything worse for people's mental health than stop people being able to meet up with each other it's, it's like such a terrifying thing especially and then people dying out outside right those two things in combination terrible for people's mental health and i i, I think that i think there's loads of great aspects to masculine values you know there's one of the things i talked about with dave thomas about exercise and stuff um setting and meeting challenges is 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 one of the things that you know helps my anxiety the most like pushing myself not going i oh i need to sort of back away from this the more you back away from challenges i think it's understandable that we want to people and everyone around you will say we should you should rest you should you know give yourself a break but actually the stuff that's always helped me has been like I'm going to train to run a marathon. Yeah, you know, fuck like that. lean into it, man. That's uh, this is one of the things, the kind of recursive self loop that I see, and I've seen it myself. So throughout my twenties, I was struggling with low mood, depression. I, I don't know whether it would have been clinical. I, I went to a GP when I was 21, uh, and this they gave me a single printout uh, and sort of ushered me on my way. So I'm hoping that it's that the NHS has improved a little bit since then. But um, throughout all of that time, when I was suffering with low mood and stuff like that so much of what happens is you become increasingly less able to lean into discomfort. A difficult thing happens or there's a challenge that's placed in front of you and you get to the stage where getting out of bed seems like an insurmountable task. You think, look, I, I, I simply can't go and have a shower. I simply can't go and make myself some food or even be bothered to go and get myself a glass of water and then you do it and you come back and you go oh my god like that was that's me for today that's me done for the day and then what you see when you're in a good place is that that reverses you see that you're more able you're more anti-fragile you go into the gym and you're putting more weight on and there's this sort of it is it is a masculine value right you sort of grit your teeth and get through this very very difficult thing that you're doing and it's not out of some sense of fear it's out of a sense that you know that you can and that you're going to do more and you're motivated but both of these spiral either down or up the same way you know well, it, it, what what's so fascinating about that is that i actually ended up having that confirmed the, the, the bit where that part clicked for me was when i was speaking to ai scientists right they this whole field of psychology now called computational psychology where we started making like self-piloting drones that would become neurotic that would stop leaving the that would stop leaving the factory right and we started having ais that were acting a bit like people with anxiety disorders right they're the self-driving cars really interesting speaking to a friend who like works you know as a researcher for self-driving cars and they had all these problems with the self-driving cars in um Milton Keynes, where they were so, <laughs> they were, they were, the, the, you know, that these cars are, are made to not crash into people, right? And the public realized that the cars were really conservative in how they drive. So they just start walking out in front of them. And it got so self driving cars couldn't 
would like be stopping and starting and just creeping along because they get because people adapt their behavior around them. Well, what we see with AIs is we started to notice that some AIs would sort of would, 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 would travel less and less far in like route finding and then eventually just wouldn't go anywhere. And what it was is they were learning about threats, taking evasive action. And then maybe that threat was only temporary. Maybe a seagull was flying through that area at that one time. But because they never try that route again, they stop updating their data on that. Because when we do anything, and this comes from like computer, from computational psychology and this kind of AI science, we're actually surreptitiously doing two things, right? We're doing the action. We're doing the behavior. We're also collecting data on the results of that behavior. Well, when you're depressed, if you stop leaving the house, you stop receiving data on what it's like to leave the house right and it, and, and 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 your whole schematic of what is what, what what threats are in the world and what the world is even like is gets more and more skewed it gets more you you get your data becomes more outdated and you get a data set from a tinier and tinier cluster of behaviors well, as soon as you start doing the opposite, I, I wouldn't even say to people, you have to get to the stage where you believe I can smash this. I can I can get fit. I can go down the gym and I can bench my my per, past my personal best. All you have to do is be a good scientist and go, should we test this? Like, should we just, should we do a test? Because like, you know, the, you know, depression sitting on your shoulder, it's like or anxiety or whatever. It's going like, OK, that is a good hypothesis. I can't do this. Let's try it out. Let's see what happens, right? We we can do this. Let, 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 let's do four trials. Let's let's do this properly, right? Because if you're so convinced, you're not going to be scared for me trying this, right? Because we, you you're going to be proven rapturously right. So let's let's try it out. And then of course, what happens is you go shit. <laughs> oh, I did that. What the, what's get? So if I was wrong about that, that one localized misbelief, what other things? Could I be wrong about? And then the whole well, that's the house spiral again. That's that recursive spiral that I'm talking about. The problem and the point at which I've been at staring at the ceiling of a bedroom for a, uh, more days than I can remember, trying to break the inertia between those two worlds, trying to break the inertia of I can't do this to let's try and do this. And that that is the point at which... I got stuck an awful lot, and I think a lot of other people do. And now, you know, many years hence, and a lot of self-work and stuff like that, it's, it's increasingly difficult for me to think about that, and it's increasingly easy for me to find equanimity when something bad happens, and increasingly easy for me to lean into discomfort when I need to as well. And, you know, it might relapse at some point in the future or whatever, but every single time that even anything difficult does happen, it seems to happen less. And that spiral makes me feel empathetic for the previous version of me that I used to be, because I know how far that person was from having that positive reinforcement from overcoming something and knowing that we'll be okay and getting out the other side and it's fine it's just for now it's not forever and all of that stuff that learning process is is very meaningful yeah and it's also i mean that feedback as well they they it's it goes back to kind of like the old kind of like classical conditioning that pavlov was doing um with 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 the dogs where um the, his his um his lab where he was testing these dogs you know where he was ring he was sounding a buzzer or having the ticking of a metronome and showing them like a bowl of meat powder and they would salivate and he would measure that that they would learn to associate the buzzer or the ticking of the metronome 
um, with food and they'd salivate just at the noise, right? Well, he had a flood in his lab um one one night and um all the dogs had to be rescued and it was very traumatic for them like the water was coming up to the because it was in a basement area right and and the dogs had like a pretty shit life under pavlov anyway but like this was particularly bad but afterwards um they found that all the dogs they had in the lab were no longer they couldn't do that classical conditioning after that they did something had frozen in them and they couldn't learn new associations and and this has been like in the work of um in 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 the work on learned helplessness where a dog gets sort of like one area of the floor will be electrocuted and another won't and it will be it will be shown a light and it has to move from one to the other and eventually they make the task impossible for the dog eventually it will just lie down and let itself be electrocuted and the only way that you can retrain a dog that has been through that is the, the the they, the experiment has to like literally go in and drag the dog onto the safe area of floor to show that its assumptions about what is and isn't safe. Once that, because they'll, they'll once they make the test possible to win again, the dog won't bother to learn that it that it can win it because but, it's just learned that life is impossible. But the dog's inertia around its own worldview is so high that it on its own can't overcome it. And and so and an experimenter has to like come in and literally. Dr- it's, I mean, it's hot. Don't do that to dogs. Like I could have told you that a dog would be depressed if you re- electrocute it repeatedly. But nonetheless, the lesson from this is they, you know, that you drag the dog onto the safe area and you do that repeatedly, and eventually it's like, okay, my assumptions about the world are wrong. But it it is not going to do that itself. And, and and that's what we can end up like basically in this kind of metaphor is is like a it, it we just stay on that electrocuted part of the floor and, and i saw this in other experiments this guy peter loverbond did one where people would be a, get an electric shock just before a sort of blue square would be flashed up on the screen and they'd be told there's a button right and you can press it and if you press it like within a second of the blue square coming up the electric shock won't happen and what they found is that they could the button could be wired to nothing right and they just tell people that's what's going on and they learn to press the button and they think they're stopping an electric shock, but there was actually never going to be one. And then when they're shown a blue square, people who had that button to press will get a jolt of anxiety. You know, all those kind of like physiological signs of it, even though they've never been electrocuted by that blue square. Um, and people who weren't given a button to press, who didn't think that there was any the safety behavior, who actually then had the moment of going, I'm going to be electrocuted. Oh, oh, oh no, there is, was no electric shock. Unlearn that association and don't find it scary anymore. And this is something they call safety behaviors, like our ability to people thinking I can't, I'll have a panic attack on the bus unless I sit, I have to sit like one of two seats by the driver. And this is the second bit I wanted to get on really quick based on what you were saying about like facing up to stuff. I spoke to this amazing researcher from Oxford University called uh, Dr. Andrea Reinecker, who I heard about, someone told me about her and I thought that can't be true, where she was solving uh, curing people of their phobias and anxieties like claustrophobics by locking them in a cupboard in a dark cupboard while giving them this thing called uh which is like increases neuroplasticity and saying you won't be let out like i'm going to put you in there and i'm not telling you when i come back can't call for me 
don't scream, don't do anything. And these are people with like chronic, like really bad um, phobia, claustrophobia. Um, and you just have to trust they'll come back. And you also, you can't do any safe behaviors. No taking, you know, a rescue remedy or a, a propranolol. You can't like do rosary beads. You can't pray. You can't tell yourself the nice lady will be back soon. You just got to sit there and just like bathe in it. How the fuck is this ethical? Well, it had people's, um, they had their, had their informed consent. There was a pretty reasonable dropout rate. A lot of people don't want to go through it, right? It's rough. Um, the trick, one of the tricks was actually she came back in 15 minutes. People were, had like cleared the whole day. They thought they might be shut in there all, all day. She came back in 15 minutes. Her like cure rate is one of the highest I've seen out of any treatment. Um, we, we know that like phobias are probably one of the best, most amenable to treatment out of anything we can do. But these people would like have their amygdala response and their phobic response like normalized. I think it was something like at least two thirds. That was it. Like 15 minutes and their phobia was cured. And their claustrophobia was cured, which is nuts. Why? Right? What's happening there? Is it the drug? So decycloserin is um, a controversial drug to use in this situation. Um, I read one paper that was called, right, so you will have already guessed what the problem with giving something that um, increases neuroplasticity is if you put them in a very traumatic situation. And the paper was called decycloserin making um, good exposures better and better exposures worse, right? If the person panics in there and starts doing safety behaviours, um, the, the neuroplasticity um, bakes that trauma in harder, which is why um, they're, you know, they're, they're looking at some other possibilities because it's a risky thing to use. Um, it's no good sitting down to someone and saying the spider isn't going to bite you. <laughs> like it's have you, how many times you've been bitten by a spider? None. How how many people do you know have been killed by spiders in in your friendship circle in the UK? None, right? Um, it's no good telling someone that it's not getting to the parts of the brain that are making them feel like they're going to die and they've got to get out of there. Your brain does not believe in hearsay. It doesn't care about that. It's got to experience it. And what what going in that cupboard gives. It's like a cast iron experience. You have just gone up against everything you feared and it had jack shit. Like you turned round to the axe murderer who's chasing you in the dream and you stood and it turned out they were just a phantom, right? And there is something, I mean, of course, like on a like conscious level, the idea of like facing your fear, we can all kind of like understand how invigorating that must feel. But just on a on the kind of uh, neurological level, and again, I'm talking about. I spoke to several neuroscientists who are like their names are in. I got a copy of the manual Neuroscience out of the library, and I looked up like the, la the last living name in the history section um, on anxiety, and then I phoned him. I, I emailed him, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll speak to you." And I, I, I got to speak to this guy Joe Ledoux, who's like the amazing. Uh, neuroscientist who deals with anxiety and like undoubtedly the most famous in the world and he said that what you've got to do is let these parts of the brain he talked about the amygdala and the hippocampus just like learn that the threat is that is not a threat but you can't do that consciously it's got to happen non-consciously it, it's got to go through it and go yeah oh 
okay stand down everyone like it turns out we were worrying about nothing you can't talk to that part of the brain theoretically so having gone through all of these different strategies tons of different techniques for trying to reduce anxiety what is it that you've come to believe on the other side of it as someone who had a lot of first-hand experience but also has now done a good bit of research with a thousand papers that you've read what have you come to believe about what does and doesn't help anxiety how has this changed the way that you deal with it in your daily life well anxiety makes us crave certainty right i think anyone who's dealing with anxiety wants like i i don't mind saying i wanted easy answers right i just wanted someone to say this is what you need to do anxiety craves certainty it it, it, it submits to authority we want people just to tell us what to do and the way out and it sucks is uncertainty it's exactly what you were talking about when you were saying that moment of doubt where you go what if my beliefs about the world are wrong there is something much more terrifying behind anxiety and i think the key to it is in people who have been through childhood traumas and yet blame themselves somehow and i spoke to one guy who did like psychotherapy psychedelic therapies and worked with people who've been through really really grim shit um doing psychedelics and, and doing therapy while they were under the influence and um i said why do people why would someone think that was their fault and the key thing is if it's not your fault then it wasn't under your control if it wasn't under your control there actually is no sequence of things you can totally do to stop bad things happening again that is the horrible truth about being a human alive in the world that we are asking anxious people to embrace when we ask them to come out of the woods right and i think that's where we've got to start right that it's there's a reason to hold on to the destructive beliefs of anxiety and panic and it is that if i can just hate myself enough i can i can like and set the algorithm up the fear algorithm i can actually pr predict any threat and i can actually make my life safe you can't you you just can't we can do sensible things i'm not saying you should like drink uh, a quart of whiskey and go dance on the motorway but um you cannot structure your life to avoid pain threat like it's just not possible and that is a bitter pill to swallow in the midst of anxiety but it's also where liberation lies and it that is the i mean if you told me that at the beginning i would have been so angry i've been like you don't understand and i'd say no i don't understand so let's talk about it because the other thing is all of this stuff about oh this is how you know the cardiopulmonary system works this is the hormone cascade is all for naught unless someone feels understood this is what uh uh, anxiety uh, therapist of 25 years this guy he's also an author mike shell told me he said he used to go in he said like talking to people about the fight flight response and telling them all the literature and just dumping it on them and he said he realized that you can't get anywhere until you feel like you've been understood until someone has heard you and you go because that was the breakthrough moment for me and, and you go that's right oh you get it that's exactly how it is. And then the other, and it's almost like when you accept that and when you've been heard, 
all this other, other stuff is like actually all this other shit is very, relatively easy because we know like, oh, people are going, I know I should do exercise. I know I should eat better. I know I should challenge myself, but I can't. And that thing about the impossible task you were talking about, you can't like put your people are going, we actually we need to like the, the world is very stressful and we need to campaign for sort of a, 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 a more just world. Well, I agree with that. But at the moment, I can't like bring myself to like have a wash. So can you understand why I'm not in a state to like upend the current system? Like that's not helpful to me. Well, like one of the things that unlocks that ability to start doing things that are in your best interest is in the moment where the message of anxiety feels like it's delivered, like the little carrier pigeon of your anxiety has like delivered that message to someone and they've heard you and they've gone, that is shit. And you've explained it to them and you hear yourself say it as well. And you hear them say it back to you and you go, fuck, that's actually now I say all that out loud. That's pretty bad, isn't it? I've been through a lot. I'm quite courageous. Then like a whole bunch of stuff melts and then a whole bunch of energy that you've been using to be anxious. You can start like redirecting that, that like adrenaline's fucking great. You can use that to like, I started doing like boxing one-to-one lessons and it like beat the shit out of me. I went to the guy, I was like, can you, I just want to learn how to get punched in the face. And he was like, yeah, let's do this. And it was great. And I'm like, it's, it is scary. It's not great. I don't enjoy particularly having like someone swing at me and punch me in the head. Right. But it's also, it's funny. (laughs) It's funny in a boxing contest context to do all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, I've got all this adrenaline and energy. I can use this to like, just rant it on like a a step machine or a, or a bike or doing sprints or like getting the kind of like battle ropes and you're, and it's knackering you and you're like this. Oh, like adrenaline feels good. So ultimately I think like none of it, none of it I think can start until you have felt understood. And if you can't find someone else to do that, then being able to write it down and at least for you to come to terms with it, you know, I, I think, I think, I think everything else comes out, out, out of that. And, and, and that's why some of this stuff about all the other stuff that we know we should do, but we can't bring ourselves to do that falls into place. When that kind of like the core part of you inside, which is just like this kid that is freaking out, feels like someone's got the message. And then they're like, okay, stand down, alarms off. Now, what were you saying about like eating some vegetables? I can do that now because I've like delivered my message. Tim Clare, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to check out what you do online, where should they go? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Tim Clare Poet, or you can just go to my website, timclairepoet.co.uk. And Coward as well. Your book will be linked in the show notes below. Tim, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for tuning in. I really hope that if you are a sufferer of anxiety or are around somebody who is, that you have taken some solace and reassurance and advice from Tim's words today. It's not easy to open up in that way, and I have a lot of respect for people who are able to be that vulnerable in pursuit of trying to help other people better their lives. So if you enjoyed it, then Tim's book is linked in the show notes below. 
Also, don't forget you can receive a 20% discount and free shipping on your lawnmower 4.0 by going to manscaped.com using the code MODERNWISDOM. You can protect yourself from online identity theft with Aura by going to aura.com slash modernwisdom and try it for free for 14 days. And you can get a 10% discount on your first month of counseling from BetterHelp at betterhelp.com slash modernwisdom. I'll see you next time.